My name is Anne Phoenix. I'm a Fellow of the British Academy and Professor of Psychosocial Studies at UCL Institute of Education. And my guest is Gary Young. Gary is an author, broadcaster and editor-at-large for The Guardian, based in London. Gary's written five books, including most recently Another Day in the Death of America, a chronicle of ten short lives. The book that's most relevant for our discussion tonight is Who Are We and Why Should It Matter in the 21st Century? It's come to be a commonplace, Gary, to think of identity as mattering. The term identity politics has passed into everyday discourse. In its current usage, it is value-laden, it's used in different ways so that it's often far from clear exactly what people mean and we have to pay close attention. And so I want to start not with identity politics, but to ask you what you think identity is and why you think it matters, why it is that you've written so much about it. I think that identity is as fundamental as who we believe ourselves to be or indeed who we are, that range and constellation of things that make us who we are. Let's say I'm talking about myself, I'm male, I'm black, my parents are from the Caribbean, so they were immigrants, though I'm not. I'm British, I'm English, I'm straight. I'm all of those things, and I am one thing, which is myself. Everybody comes to politics with something. Everybody comes to life with something. Now, I think one of the reasons that I've written as much as I have about it is because there are relatively few black journalists. So I have to do more work to explain where I'm coming from. Nobody asks me, when did you come out as a straight man? Nobody asks me, how did you balance being a foreign correspondent and having kids? There are a range of things that the people with the more dominant identities are never asked. Our world view, our understanding of what is and isn't important can become skewed and shaped depending on who has the floor and what assumptions they're making about who they're talking about and whom they're talking to. And of course, all of those things aren't equal at the same time. If I'm walking down the street at night and there are a group of young white males behind me and they have shaven heads the fact that I'm black becomes an issue for me and I may cross the road if I'm walking down the road and in front of me is a young woman of any race then the fact that I'm male is an issue for her and I may cross the road both times I'm crossing the road I'm the same person, but the way in which those identities come to the fore or recede is not shaped by me alone. On September 10th, 2001, someone whose name is Mustafa and whose parents are from Pakistan or from Egypt or wherever, who lives in London or lives in New York, maybe drinking alcohol, eating bacon, having, you know, a right old time with their friends. On September the 12th, they're asked to explain themselves. So these identities do not exist in a vacuum. They are shaped by forces beyond our control. 
And it's interesting because you bring up a number of issues that might be said to relate to identity politics. You might also say that they they don't, that they're more complex than identity politics because you've mentioned temporality. Things change over time. You've mentioned situatedness, so it depends whether you're walking behind a woman or you're being walked behind by young white men with shaven heads and so on. But nonetheless, you could say that here we have identity politics to do with gender and identity politics potentially to do with racialization. And I wonder if you could take that a bit further and say something about how do we get from identities, and clearly you've shown us that identities matter, to thinking about identity politics. Identities really come to the fore when you do something with them. And it's in those moments, if we think back to the civil rights era in America, one could say that was a form of identity politics. They were looking for equality, but they were looking for equality on grounds of race because they had been denied equality on grounds of race. If we look to Stonewall, it was people galvanising on the basis of their identity politically that made equality between gay people and straight people possible. And so at any moment, any of these identities can be politicised. In a way, that's my point about the stock character, Mustafa, whose latent Islamic identity becomes something that he has to organise around or deny or whatever. When I left to report from America, I was in my early 30s and a fairly young person at The Guardian. There were almost no black people there, very, very few. I came back, there were more black people there, but I'm also an older man. And I have to deal with that. I have to engage with that accordingly in meetings and so on. There's no real barrier to me speaking, but there are younger people and there are particularly younger women and so on. All of which is to say, I guess, that at any given moment, the identities we have can be politicised or we can politicise them in order to either gain equality or to gain supremacy. And that's one of the things I think is often lost in identity politics is dominant people also have an identity, right? White people, men, straight people, British people, citizens as opposed to non-citizens. And so when people say, for example, in America, this was a defeat for identity politics that Hillary lost. And I think, no, it's actually a victory for identity politics because here is Donald Trump galvanising people on the basis of them being white and Christian and American. Those two are identities. Now, the more powerful your identity, the less likely you are to recognise you have it. And that's why politics around identity is a bit like fire, I describe it in the book. It can warm your hands, it can give you comfort, it can provide you with community or a group of black people, women together, gay people on a march, whatever it is, but it can burn you too. It can become the focus for a kind of fundamentalism, which can be very, very dangerous, and so we have to be careful with it. Do you think that identities can ever be non-political you've said you know how they can be both politicized you know by the insider by the outsider 
but can they ever be non-political? I think identities can be non-political. I think some people see themselves as their primary identity as being a West Ham supporter, that that's a thing they identify with more than anything else. Well, yeah, I don't think that's a particularly political identity. I think some identities are social, some are ethnic, some are religious. I think most identities have the capacity to be politicised, but I think there are lots of them that never are, and the ones that are aren't necessarily going to be politicised forever. And they are situated, as you say. So in Britain, I don't even consider myself a Christian particularly, but when I'm in America around Jewish friends, or when I lived in Sudan, then suddenly December the 25th had a certain meaning, and you realise how many stories you know, nativity story or whatever, and you realise how many stories you don't know. So is my Christianity political? Well, it can be, but it's not necessarily. Take that a little further, because one of the things that you indicated was that all identities are situated. And that means that surely the West Ham identity doesn't come out of nowhere. Nobody's born being a West Ham supporter. Perhaps they are, I don't know about it. I'm not a football fan, so... So therefore, it's situated in a whole set of everyday practices, worldviews, location, and so on. Can it be non-political, really? So my answer is going to be a fudge, which is, it could be, but I would have to be convinced that you were doing something political with it. Turning up at a football game and screaming for your team and then going home, certainly... It's a social identity. You look at other people with the same scarf, the same strip, and you see kinship. But I would have to be convinced, well, where is the politics in that? Now, if you go to Scotland and you look at Celtic and Rangers, there are clear political affiliations to do with religion, to do with Ireland, and then from there, a constellation of other kind of allegiances that one might have, and football becomes the conduit for that. If you look back to the era of football hooliganism and the role that race played in that, you can see that it could, but that the point I'm making is that generally it doesn't. If someone says, I'm a Katy Perry fan, it's central to who I am, I'm going to change my name to Katy Perry, it's central to who I am. Well, I would want to see some evidence of how that was political. Which doesn't mean it couldn't be, but it wouldn't be obvious to me. And to be honest, I would say the same thing for any identity that I see, particularly, but not exclusively in America, identities eviscerated of their politics and becoming simply a performative or worse still, a kind of tradable commodity. I have a practical example, actually. When talking to students, non-white students, in my younger days, there was a term politically black, and it meant people who weren't white. And this was, I would argue, an organising term. There is a constant debate about what meaning that has and whether we should retire it. And people saying, but those 
Asians or Bangladeshis, they're not black in the way that I'm black. And what I say at these student meetings, because I sometimes am invited to speak to young black student organisers, and I say, look, you can call yourself whatever you want. But for us, this was an organising term. It wasn't about how we felt. It wasn't about the food we ate. It wasn't about the languages we spoke. It was about a shared experience of racism, migration, a certain kind of anti-colonial or colonial experience that we shared, which was sufficient to organise around. Now, you can split up into not just black and Asian, but Ghanaian and Nigerian and Barbadian and Jamaican and all the rest. But then I ask you, how do you organise? Because that's what I'm interested in. That the politics of it, to me, would be around actually getting things done and making a difference, not just how I feel. And so for identities to have a political dimension, I think they have to be both social and engaged. If Tiger Woods says, I see myself as a Kabbalanasian, there's Caucasian, Black, Indian, Asian in me, I think, okay, fine. You go organise on the basis of being a Kabbalanasian and you get all your Kabbalanasian friends together and I'll see how far you've got. But there is a workable term out there called black. Now, Kabbalanasian is how you feel, but it's not a political identity. That's just you. It's another word for Tiger Woods. I'm more interested in the political identities. And I think you make a good case for that. But I'm going to come back to the example you gave of the fact that identity politics can be employed, even unconsciously, by people who are in more powerful positions. So in other words, who are not making claims to social equality, who are really attempting to maintain the status quo, which is very good for them. And can you just say a bit about how you think identity politics operates there? Well, the danger, I think, with identity politics always, and this goes whether you're more or less powerful, is the degree to which it's just about you or that you are using your identity to engage with other people. It's a great place to start, identity, and a terrible place to finish. So if it's just about you, for me, whatever, for black men, for gay women, for Palestinians, for any one soul group, then the risk and the tendency is towards fundamentalism. When you use that identity to make connections with others, to say, yes, I want the same for gay people as I do for black people. I want the same for women as I do for men. I want what Scotland has, I think Wales should have and and England should have or whatever. When you make connections sometimes across oceans and generations and so on, that's when it's useful. The other kind of identity in politics, the one that I just talked about, just for black people or just... Well, that is really reactionary. Now, when it's with less powerful groups, it comes through as often fairly nasty form of fundamentalism or separatism or whatever. But when it's the more powerful groups... It becomes a way of exerting and maintaining your power and your privilege. Apartheid is a very good example. We are white. We will control this country on the basis of our whiteness. Whiteness is a qualification for power. And those things don't always have to be written down. They can simply be understood. So there is a way of asserting your identity. And I think that's what's happening now in a lot of both Western Europe and America. 
we are British and therefore we are American and therefore we are white or we are Western. So there's a way of asserting it and then there's also a way of denying it and weirdly they can come almost exactly the same time from the same person. With a rhetorical sleight of hand it's possible to say well you know these are the people who applied. I can't help it if the interviewees are no good or if they didn't want to do it or if they're all criminals or or whatever so there is a there is a connection when the powerful assert their identity of both claiming their identity and denying it all at the same time i wonder if you could say something about the obama clinton elections in the united states the complexity of the identity politics that were at play and just give some examples from your experience being in the States at the time. It was very interesting during that period when Obama was standing against Hillary in the Democratic primaries. All of the sloppy thinking that had gone around suddenly washed to the top. My son was born on a weekend that Obama declared and people would say, well, this will be wonderful for your son. And I would say, how? Not that it wouldn't, but how? Would you, well, you know, if there could be a black president, and I'd say, well, would you say the same if Condoleezza Rice? She's a Republican. And I'd say, well, no, no, that would be, that would be different. So, okay, so it's not then because he's black. It's because of what he's saying, right? And then there is a symbolic thing of him being black, but actually without the substantial stuff about what he's actually saying, you would not claim him. You're not claiming other black people who were standing. And on the other side, you had many Hillary supporters who pitted her gender against his race and said, including Gloria Steinem, she said, you know, black men always get their rights before white women, which must have been really news to Emmett Till, you know, who was murdered in Mississippi, allegedly for saying bye baby to a white woman in a store, a young boy who was murdered in cold blood and the woman who died recently confessed that actually he didn't say anything. But to all of those black males who were hung from trees at the word of a white woman who said that they molested them. Now, my point here isn't to pit black men against white women, actually quite the opposite, to say let's not talk in those terms that... There's enough misery to go around. It's not a competition. And let's accept and understand that even at the most binary level, black men have a gender and white women have a race. And therefore, let's approach this with the sophistication that it deserves. Now, what I saw, which I thought was really intriguing during the South Carolina primary, was the world's media descending on black women and saying... This is going to be a really tough decision for you, isn't it? You have a black man and you have a woman. Which one are you going to go for? And it was as though they were going to be rent asunder, as though they weren't black women as a kind of concept. They were black and they were women, and those two things couldn't be reconciled. Nobody asked white men, who are you going to support? You've got a white person, Hillary, and you've got a man. Obama, who are you going to go for? Because whiteness and masculinity aren't understood in that way. And so the whole thing fell on these black women. 
And I did some videos and we went to hairdressing salons and a few other places to, to talk about women. And I was surprised that any black women got their hair done that weekend because that's where journalists were going to kind of tease out this non-dilemma. I wonder if following on from your discussion of the Obama-Clinton era, that you could now talk a bit about how you see Trump fitting into discussion of identity and identity politics. I think Trump was in many ways a master practitioner of identity politics, that he galvanised white people on the basis of their whiteness. Even though he's not Christian, he's not known to be particularly devout, but he galvanised people on the basis of their fear of Islam. He galvanised a certain kind of man, but he also managed to galvanise a certain kind of woman, white women in particular. And he did it on the basis of a retroactive nostalgic version of what it meant to be a white American that make America great again I did a documentary angry white and American we only interviewed white people and I would ask them he said make America great again when would you like to go back to and they'd give you a date and it would be the 50s sometimes before the great depression and I would say to him you realize that if I was American, I couldn't vote then. And I would say, oh, yeah, well, we don't want to go back to all, all that. I don't mean all of that. Now, some of what they wanted to go back to were things that I'm really sympathetic to. They wanted to go back to regular employment with a decent wage that paid enough to live on, where there was health care, where they could afford, their children could afford to go to college, where they would assume that their children's lives would be better than theirs. I don't think that's a terrible assumption. It's just that black people at that time never had that assumption about their lives. They couldn't because of the dead weight of racism. But built into that nostalgia is a time when, look, we were king. We ran things. We had a certain status. And that status isn't just about those material things. It's also about whiteness. It would have to be because black people like all of that stuff too. They like good wages and health care and their children having a better life than they do. But they don't want to go back to the 50s and 60s because it didn't really work for them. And so he leveraged this nostalgia. And on the other hand, you had Hillary saying, he says, make America great again. Well, America's great already. Well, lots of people thought it wasn't. Now, this should be very familiar to many of the people listening because I think it's a very similar message to the one that happened with Brexit which was about putting the great back into Great Britain. It was about going backwards to a better time. Nobody thinks about, well, where did that great come from? Or what did it mean? Or, you know, none of that is explored. There's simply this melancholy for a previous time when white people felt more secure. And that's his appeal. And you should never forget that he didn't win the popular vote and the, you know, the vote was down and all of that. So it wasn't that the overwhelming majority of Americans loved it. It was, compared to what else was on offer, which was more of the same, enough of them liked it to get him in. I wonder if I could ask you now to speculate forward. You've given us some good examples of why it is that you think that straightforward identity politics don't work, they're problematic, but also that identities do matter and that social categories do matter. So what would you like to see in the future if we were to, as you suggest, perhaps drop the term identity politics 
But nonetheless, you want political organisation that I assume is for social justice. So can you just say how you would see a future without the term? Would it make identity politics disappear? What would be your way forward? And I guess that's the thing, is that it's because the term has been so maligned that I would like to retire it. It's like political correctness. It means whatever you want it to mean, so long as you don't like it. And when we look at what people are talking about with political correctness, quite often it's civility or a more sophisticated form of language or dropping terms that have insulted people for centuries, but the people who run the show didn't care. I'm for all of that. It's just that the term political correctness has become so maligned that people use it, you know, I don't want to sound PC, but it's like, well, just drop that bit and just tell me what you think. Similarly with identity politics, identity is in politics. If you're paid 82p and the guy next to you is paid a pound, that's a material thing that is a result of your identity. If you can vote and I can't, that's a material thing that comes as a result of your identity. Identity politics is often used just to mean anti-racism and anti-sexism. It's become so maligned and so polluted that I don't think we can work with it and I don't think we need it. So unlike feminism, which while it has been maligned and you have lots of people saying, well, I don't want to sound like a feminist, but there is still use and value and organising capability in that term. So I would like to see actually more of what we see just without the dismissiveness and more sharp thinking. So where you have people fighting racism or Black Lives Matter or Me Too, to talk about that for what it is. It's a campaign against sexual harassment. It's a campaign to stop police shooting black people in the street. No progressive agenda can really work without engaging with those things. And so I would like to see those things not maligned, but embraced. I'd also love to see more unity, and one could always want this, and we rarely get it, between what within the coalition of what would be progressive thinking. That quite often, identity politics is set against class politics. One is about solidarity, one is about diversity, ne'er the twain shall meet. That is the kind of, the left, a left orthodoxy. And to say, look, first of all, the distinction between race and class or gender and class is a bogus one. There are intersectional reasons. There are black people who are working class. There are women who are working class. There are gay people who are working class. The working class isn't one group of people. And working class demands aren't only demands for terms and conditions or the degree to which they are. There are different terms and conditions depending on what part of the working class you're in. And so to see an end to that false distinction and a more hopeful sense of coalition building in which bread and butter trade union demands or whatever are part of a series of demands that people can make and are not seen as the preserve of the hallowed white working class who are pitted then against the black, the gay, the immigrant and so on because that way we always lose and I'd like to win. Thank you very much, Gary Young. It's been a fascinating discussion. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching British Academy. And to find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit britishacademy.ac.uk.